Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark kicks off his magnum opus. Uh, I like it. I like truth in advertising. I'm a, I'm a big fan of truth in advertising because I've been burned by ads on Facebook. You may know that I'm a sucker for the products that are advertised on Facebook, and you wouldn't believe this if I told you, but I'm going to tell you anyway, that I think there is some sort of system on Facebook that targets me and advertises things that they think somehow mystically I would really like. Oddly enough, on my uh, Facebook page, they're they're targeting middle-aged men whose youth is rapidly vanishing. And, and then I saw this advertisement, and it kept reappearing of this very, very fit man in his late 30s. And he, and he says, look, I don't work out every day, and I eat whatever I want. And it shows him, and he's eating pizza, and he's eating burgers and french fries, and he's happy. And he's, he's around very attractive people, and they're smiling, and they're all wearing very tight clothing. Uh, and, and he says, you know... I've learned some things about life, and I want to share them with you. And I was excited, because he wanted to talk to me. He cared about me. And he said, I've discovered that you also can have a great physique without strenuous exercise and without uh, extreme diets, without eating salads every day. And I made this video especially for you. I was thrilled. So I watched the video, and at the beginning of the video, he says, I have discovered that there are three foods that people often assume are health foods, but you need to avoid these foods if you want to remain fit. And I've also discovered three foods that engage the thermal activity of your body so that your metabolism is increased, and I will tell you what they are. And I made this video to inform you. I watched the 45-minute video. And you know what I discovered? I never, well, here's what I discovered. I never discovered what I wanted to discover. I never found out what the three health foods were that were lying, you know, that were deceitful health foods that didn't help my metabolism. And I never learned what thermal meant or what three foods that I needed to eat in order to remain fit. What I love about Holy Scripture is it never attempts to do what the fit man on Facebook said that he was going to do. In other words, scripture doesn't lie to you. It tells you right from the start what it's about and what it wants to convince you of. And this Adventan text today from Mark chapter 1 represents truth in advertising. The author gets right to the point. In verse 1, we see an initial claim. And in verses 2 through 7, we see an initial character. So let me speak about the bold opening of this gospel in terms of its initial claim and its its initial character. First, the initial claim. This is verse 1. I'll repeat it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a very terse way to begin. 
uh, and there is a universe of meaning implicit in those few words. So let's parse it out a little bit together, and hopefully we will see uh, what Mark is getting at in the rest of his gospel. It's interesting that he begins with the word beginning, RK in Greek. And it's interesting that this is the first word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis 1.1, arcane is used. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word is now being deliberately used right here at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And what he is not so subtly saying is that his message regarding God in the flesh, regarding Jesus Christ who has come among us, is just as important or even more important than the creation of the cosmos. He's directly linking the two of old creation and new creation. So... He's being deliberate. This is the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel. What does the word gospel, or in Greek, evangelion, mean? It's a grand and public announcement. Uh, it's an announcement to you about something that has occurred, and has occurred not because of you. Uh, in other words, it's not advice. It's not good counsel. It's not opinion. It's not a step-by-step -step plan about how to improve your life. Instead, it's a declaration of something that somebody else has accomplished. Very often, whenever a Caesar had accomplished something great in the empire, he would publish something like a gospel, publish a grand declaration to the whole empire that something was constructed or some battle was won in his name, and he was declaring that good news to you. Well, now we have a gospel or a declaration of good news, but it's not about a, a king as we would typically think of them. It's about Jesus the Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you know right away that Mark has a certain conviction about this Jesus person. He doesn't understand Jesus to be just another sage or another lecturer or another professor or another brilliant psychoanalyst. They didn't have those in the first century, but the rough equivalent of one of those. Instead, he gives him a royal title. He says this is the beginning of the gospel of King Jesus because Christ means anointed one. Uh, Mashiach comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach, anointed one, means that somebody was slathered with oil in a, a ceremonial and even sacramental gesture that they were set aside to have particular power or authority over a group of people. Many prophets in the Old Testament were Messiahs, Mashiachs, anointed one, men, uh, many kings, many priests, set aside with particular authority. Uh, and yet, all of those prophets, kings, and priests did not live up to uh, the ultimate example that they ought to have. And so there was this prophetic sense in the Old Testament that there was a more perfect Messiah to come, a more perfect monarch or anointed one. And so right from the start of this gospel, Mark wants you to know that man has finally arrived, and it is Jesus the Christ. But as if that's not enough, he gives Jesus another title. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is, a, is an expansive term used rather flexibly even in the Old Testament. That title has some royal connotations too. David was regarded as a Son of God, and many 
ancient kings were known in the ancient world as sons of the gods. But it seems to mean something beyond that, because if you're the son of God, it means to some extent that God is parental in his quality and relational in his quality, or else he wouldn't have a son. So God is in essence a father that has a son, and there is some sort of spiritual DNA that is shared between father and son, that they represent the same kind of things. Uh, And so that's why Jesus can later say that I only do what I see the Father doing, or I and the Father are one, that they shared the same plans, but also the same nature. And that is reflected here, that right from the start, Jesus is called the Son of God. He shares God's divine nature, his DNA. Uh, And so Mark's gospel begins with a bold claim. I am telling you about grand news, a bold announcement that I'm making publicly. It has to do with a person, a person who happened to be the Christ, the one for whom we were waiting, and who happens to be divine in his core nature as well as human. And I want you to know that right from the start. And what I'm about to tell you is just as significant as the creation of the cosmos. Now, I find that Mark's gospel begins rather oddly, especially for Advent, because he seems to be boycotting Christmas. He jumps over it entirely. Mark doesn't give us what Matthew and Luke give us. After all, Matthew and Luke are where we get those beautiful and even romantic pictures of the first Christmas of mangers and stars and wise men and shepherds, and Mark seems to bypass all of it. Mark also doesn't begin where the Gospel of John begins. The Gospel of John begins with metaphysics. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came flesh. Well, Mark doesn't begin there. Instead, Mark begins with an adult conversation. Mark Mark begins with an adult Messiah, a Jesus who had a fully formed and settled identity as the Son of God, as the Christ because he wants us to know from the opening line of his gospel who this Jesus is. And he wants you to know that this Jesus is the most consequential figure who has ever existed. Now, uh, I want to underscore the importance of how Mark begins because it is downright threatening and controversial that he is beginning his gospel by telling you that no one who has ever existed, not the most influential people in your life, hold a candle to this most influential of men, because he has the transcendent operative within him in a way that you don't, and in a way that no one else that you've ever known has had. Uh, And so this, by the way, is the grand and very fatal flaw of liberal theology. Now, when I say liberal theology, I'm not making any reference to politics. Uh, I'm I'm talking about something very, very different, which I'll get into in a minute. Now, fundamentalist theology, or very, very conservative Christian theology, has its own uh, pathologies, including sort of an anti-culture posture, an anti-science posture, which, by the way, needlessly hamstrings the presentation of the Christian gospel. Um, But that's the era of fundamentalism. Liberal Christianity almost always engages in the demotion of Jesus Christ. They can handle Jesus being anything except a Christ. Uh, So they can handle a a Jesus who is a humanitarian, who is a spiritually oriented mystic, who is a social reformer, who is a brilliant professor, uh, who is a person in touch with a universal energy of love. <laughs> I sound like Celine Dion, love. Um, uh, but with the one thing that liberal theology can never handle is a Christ who is the Son of God, or a Jesus who is a Christ. 
Uh, why? Because uh, that would indicate uh, linguistically and theologically and eventually practically that Jesus is entirely unique and superior. And that makes dialogue with other uh, spiritual strains, let's say, very, very difficult. Because we are starting, our starting place is that, not that we are superior, because that would be a, a joke, but that Jesus Christ is superior. That Jesus Christ is superior. Uh, he is not just like you, but better. You, but a little bit improved. He is something wholly other that has come among us. Uh, to uh, quote Karl uh, Barth, he is not just one mountain among a range of mountains. Jesus Christ is the thunder in the Alps. He is something different, unique, superior. And I uh, do not wish to, and no one who ever preaches from this pulpit or any other Grace Anglican will ever uh, demote Jesus Christ, because to demote Jesus Christ necessarily deflates Christianity. And so we have a high Christology, which we confess every week in the Christian creeds, that this is not just a man, but he is the God-man. He is God from God, light from light, very God, very God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Uh, and so Mark begins his gospel this way with a bold initial claim. And you have that in the earliest gospel. I actually think that Mark is likely the earliest gospel ever written, probably in the 50s, maybe early 60s. And right from the start, you have high Christology. This is not something that developed over the centuries that Constantine invented, you know, in 318. This is something that goes back to the initial genius of the New Testament and of Jesus, the man behind the New Testament. And so Mark begins with this bold initial claim, and we ought not dilute the message because it's uncomfortable. And it's okay if it's uncomfortable with you. That's fine. But let's not lie about it. This is the message. Um, and then there's this initial character. So that's verse 1, the initial claim. And now verses 2 through 7, the initial character that is presented to us in Mark's gospel. You know, it's rather odd, but the, quote, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unquote, doesn't begin with Jesus Christ. It begins with his extended family. It begins with this character named John the Baptist. And in verse 2, you have this lovely prophetic utterance from Isaiah written in the 8th century B.C., you know, written just... So, so long before these events that were recorded in Mark's gospel that it's, it's amazing that it was ever remembered in the first place. 800 years prior, this is what Isaiah wrote. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Uh, now, notice this prophecy is not about Jesus Christ exactly, not, not mainly. It's about the forerunner of Jesus Christ. It's about uh, someone who would prepare the way. Now, notice the one for whom they're preparing the way. They're preparing the way for the Lord, that is, for Yahweh. So whoever this forerunner is, it is their job to make the path straight for the coming of Almighty God. Now, that's high Christology again. Because John understands that it is his role to prepare the way for this messianic figure who would be the God-man who uh, dwells with us. Now, why does Mark begin with the Old Testament in his gospel? Well, because he's trying to say that whoever this Jesus is as the Christ and the Son of God, he is linked to the great story that comes before him. This is not a complete novum, though there are novums in the ministry and life of Jesus. But he is attached and has his roots uh, that, that uh, dig down deeply into the great bojess of the Jewish tradition before him. 
Okay, so there's that. Uh, so there's the prophecy of somebody coming in the name of the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord. And then verses 3 through 8 in our passage is about the fulfillment of that prophecy in which John the Baptist arrives on the scene. Now, John the Baptist is a completely unhinged uh, wild man who dwells in the desert and um, believes that he is the final prophet before the end of the world. I mean, for a variety of reasons, he believes that he is the last gasp of the prophetic voice of the Bible, in which he is finally preparing the way for the alarming, the alarming visitation of Yahweh, which he believes is going to scorch the world and renew it through a burning and purging. And so the method, his own personal and actualized method of fulfilling that ancient expectation from Isaiah is that he would engage in a little bit of public rage. Uh, and a lot of prophets did that. Uh, he might have been the angriest among them. Uh, but he would engage in public rage at the moral rot of his society. And he was very interested in uh, seeking to upset the status quo. He was not interested in people's comfort at all. I mean, not at all. He was very invasive. He was rude. He was deliberate, uh, deliberately uh, sort of offensive, not for the sake of being offensive, but to quicken people to their death. Uh, desperate situation when it came to God. And so he was shaking apart people's worlds by offering them this unusual and uh, very challenging invitation. He essentially is telling them, how about you come out of the proverbial closet and admit that you're an enemy of God? And I want you to admit it publicly. And so I want you to leave your house and your city and your patterns and come and join me in the desert, which is an ancient Jewish setting for purging. So come out to the grand wasteland of life. Come out to the place of great purging in Israelite history. And out here with me, out yourself as a public sinner and take a bath. You need a bath. Uh, you need a spiritual cleansing that will be uh, visualized uh, in the Jordan River. And so he baptizes people for the remission of their sins and does it publicly. Now, I want you to notice what a courageous thing that is. He is asking people to act discordantly to their own natures. What is the nature of sin? Well, the nature of sin, of course, is rebellion against God. But sin always runs uh, concurrently with shame. So whenever you engage in a particularly dastardly act or something that you're uncomfortable with, you hide it, which is what we do and have done since the garden. We camouflage, camouflage our complicity. But John is saying, I don't want you to do that. I want you to out yourself. Come out of the garden and admit who you are. No more shielding yourself. Finally confess that you are not only rotten, but rotten to the core and completely ill-prepared to meet God. It was funny. Uh, insofar as I know, now I'm sure that there have been times where this has happened, uh, but uh, that I'm just blissfully unaware of them. I did have one person walk out on a sermon that I once preached because I was preaching from Romans chapter 3, and I said that the diagnosis of Romans 3, along with the rest of the New Testament, is that we are rotten to the core. And somebody walked out because they said that was horribly, horribly offensive. Um, I agree, it is offensive, but I didn't make it up. Uh, and, uh, and John is here saying that you are so 
out of sorts with God, that you need to out yourself and receive a cleansing from outside yourself in order to properly meet your maker. So no more hiding of your weaknesses, no more camouflaging your crimes, no more justifying yourself. Completely confess. And as you do, uh, you may be prepared to meet God. Now, that is a rough message, and who wants to hear that? Because we live in a time right now where we believe that self-esteem and self-salvation are the same thing. Uh, and so we're always seeking to justify ourselves and to, um, and to demonstrate our own credibility through blaming somebody in our life that has made our life miserable. But the truth of the matter is that what we need more, more than um, sin and self-help is salvation from the outside. Uh, and so John is saying that there is a solution to your plight, but it's not found in you. It's found in this ritualized action that represents a cleansing that I'm here to offer you in order to prepare you to meet the fiery Messiah who is to come. Now, you know, as uh, likely, as well as I do, that Jesus' personality and emphases are different than John's. And this created, at one point, a real rift, a temporary rift, but a real rift between the two gentlemen. Because John expects Jesus, the coming Messiah, to be a pyromaniac who would burn down the world. And, uh, and that's why he is scandalized when Jesus approaches him for baptism. Because he's here saying, I'm giving you an inferior baptism. But there's somebody who's coming after me who is more worthy than me. And he will be offering a baptism of fire and spirit. Well, then Jesus comes for water baptism. What is Jesus doing? He is standing shoulder to shoulder with the dirty river people, just like you and just like me. And John didn't expect that. And John didn't expect him to be this kind healer and this tender man who would accept sinners. I mean, he, he didn't really have a mental space for that kind of messianic behavior. Um, but nevertheless, even though they did have these different personalities and different emphases, Jesus did believe that John was the necessary precursor to his ministry that you needed a John in order to have a Jesus. Why? Because sometimes you need to demolish before you develop. Sometimes you need to blast before you build. And there were many things in people's lives that needed to be unveiled in order to be healed. And that's why there are two great theological words within Christianity, two enduring words uh, that really do, in some ways, summarize the great gospel message. And those two words are law and gospel. The law is the first word of God that comes to you to unveil the human condition in all of its rebellion. And the gospel comes along later to heal, cure, absolve, in light of that which was identified and diagnosed by the law. Uh, and so this is the passage today. We have truth and advertising in the initial claim about who Jesus is and in this initial character who prepares the way for the gracious Messiah. So uh, a closing word about each category, something about the initial claim and the initial character. The initial claim uh, is that there is only one Christ who shares DNA with the Ancient of Days. And this is a mysterious, of course, but definitive claim within our religion. And today, uh, we have a profound allergy to definitive claims. We love ambiguity. We love blurred lines. We love halfway commitments. 
uh, and, uh, when, and that happens in various spheres of life when it comes to the solidity of a career path or trusting the government or the solidity of marriage or the concept of gender. All of it's up for grabs right now. I mean, that's the mode in which we are living. Uh, and yet, the claim from Mark couldn't be clearer that we are dealing here with a man who claimed to be Christ and the Son of God, and that is a very deeply uh, threatening claim because it's so definitive. It means that after all is said and done, the buck does stop with somebody, that there is somebody who has ultimate authority, somebody calls the shots, and somebody defines the terms, and it ain't you, and it ain't me. It's not our little convictions, it's not our personalities and our proclivities and our politics and things that in our sort of idiosyncrasies and the people that we trust the most, our favorite authors, they're all, well, I was going to say they're all terrific. Maybe they're not terrific. I have no idea. The point is that the buck doesn't stop with them. The buck stops with the one who is the son of God. And as uh, Christians, uh, we ourselves are learning to bow. We're learning to bow. We're not quite there, but we're learning to bow before this one to name Christ as Christ. And to do such a thing is completely counter-cultural counter and a revolutionary act that has the power to shape your whole life. Because if you start saying over to you over and over again about this one who is called the Christ, your life will be demonstrably shaped in glorious and beautifying ways, but in ways that put you at odds with the rest of the world. And I don't care what stream of uh, cultural consciousness you're part of. It'll put you at odds with it to some degree. And so do we have the courage to really say the creed and mean it? Because if you do that, you are setting yourself up as an enemy of the dark elements of creation. So there's that. That's the initial claim. Now something about the initial character. Where do you in your own life hear the echoes and accents of a John the Baptist figure? Who is your inconvenient truth teller? Uh, you know, John is like the doctor with bad bedside manner. It's like having a doctor who comes to your bedside and says, I have bad news, you have stage four colon cancer, and we're going to chemo the hell out of you until you are cured. And, uh, and it'll be painful and terrible, and, uh, but you'll live. Um, do you have anybody in your life that, that you permit to have that much honesty with you? To really tell you uh, what's wrong? Maybe it's a friend or a counselor or a minister, or maybe it's uh, coming from something rather uh, unpersonal in the sense, maybe it's a song or a poem or something that, that's, that, that speaks into your life, that contradicts uh, your givens. And, uh, and I think that the only way we grow in life is to realize that there are vast swaths of our lives that may be out of sorts with reality. The only way we grow is to admit potential error. And if we don't admit potential error, and we're always coming to every conversation with a loaded gun, uh, with, with uh, convictions that are entirely settled, or with um, uh, sublimated aggression, we are not in a place of learning anything new or being shaped by God. I, I sometimes run into uh, uh, students who have a great deal of trouble with a particular speaker, or a professor, or a lecture, or a sermon, or something else. And, and they're fighting against it with such uh, stentorious ferocity. And I, and I think to myself, I think that you're fighting against it so strongly because there's something in it that you desperately need to hear. Or else you wouldn't be fighting. You just wouldn't care. My suggestion to you would be to be less defensive and more curious when it comes to the things that afflict you. More curious. I wonder why this bothers me so much. 
I wonder if there's some truth in this difficult lesson. I wonder if there are areas in my own life that God wishes to redeem. And uh, I wonder if there's more freedom for me. Little things like that. But to raise the question and to allow the John the Baptist voice and all of its alarming truth to speak. Because I think when we begin to admit the truth about our own ugliness, we become beautiful. I think that's the lesson from the life of John the Baptist. So that's something about the initial claim and the initial character. And, uh, and that, uh, uh, of course, elucidates the great truth of Advent, which is uh, that we believe in truth in advertising. I am not here today, and none of us are, to proclaim to you a gimmick uh, or a formula or a magic pill uh, or a diet that says you can eat whatever you want and never exercise and be incredibly fit and attractive. Uh, I'm not here to proclaim to you another moral coach or a well-informed lecturer. I'm here to proclaim to you the unique one, the Son of God, the Christ, the one who wades into the dirty water next to you and doesn't reject you when he finds you there. And I pray that we all accept him as such and learn the endless delight of bowing the knee to the enduring King of Kings. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your breath.